Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. At the end of the year 1896, residents of California were startled to see an unknown airship appearing in their skies. This was before the Wright brothers conducted their first powered flight in 1903, and although balloons had been used for years, these new airships displayed unusual flight characteristics that were beyond other craft in their day. In recent years, many have proposed that the wave of the 1890s airships were early UFO sightings that heralded contact with extraterrestrials. But others have said that it was all a giant hoax. But what's the truth about the 1890s airship mystery? Was it alien? Was it a hoax or was it something else? The mystery airships of 1896 and 1897 are a fascinating phenomenon. The stories themselves are interesting. And when we look at what could explain the stories, we likely are looking at multiple causes. However, it's fairly easy to show that while many of the proposed explanations may have been true in some cases, they are not good general explanations for the overall phenomenon. We can't simply explain it away by saying that people were misidentifying things like meteors, fireballs, comets, and the planet Venus. We can't explain it away as just based on hoaxes by ordinary people, railroad workers, newspaper men, or pranksters. The evidence suggests that people really were seeing something like airships in the sky. But despite the claims in the UFO community, we do not have good evidence that they were extraterrestrial or interdimensional in nature. Neither do we have good evidence that they were from a crypto-terrestrial civilization. The evidence supports them being terrestrial craft built by human beings. So the question is, who built them? You're listening to episode 280 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the secret origins of the 1890s mystery airships. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. For seven months, between 1896 and 1897, hundreds of people reported seeing strange airships in the sky. They're known as the mystery airships, the phantom airships, or the ghost airships. Some people think that they were the earliest UFOs from another planet. Last week, we examined many of the theories about the airships, and we were able to eliminate many of them. But part of the mystery remains unsolved. So what were the airships? Who was behind them? And was the government involved? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what do we want to say to begin today? Just a minor note uh, before we get into the second half of our mystery. I wanted to mention that you did some really great artwork for today's episode using an AI, but it's not an actual photograph of an airship, though we will have an actual photograph later in this episode for those who are watching the video version. In any event, it's an illustration of how folks in the future will need to be cautious about AI artwork and whether it's artwork or a real photograph. Very good. Now, last week you concluded that the mystery airships were real, that we have good evidence from solidly sourced accounts of people who are known to have been real, who saw them and who even talked with their crew. You concluded that although you can't rule out that there were aliens visiting Earth in the 1890s, 
that at least the bulk of the airships were built and manned by humans. What can we figure out about them and where they came from? Well, some very interesting work has been done on this subject by Michael Busby in his book, Solving the 1897 Airship Mystery. One of the things Busby did was study reports of airship sightings in Texas, and he plotted not only where the airships were seen and when, but also the direction that they were traveling. And this let him estimate where the airships had a landing place that they could stay during the daytime because they traveled almost exclusively at night. Why was that? Why would they travel by night rather than during the daytime? There are a number of possible reasons. One is that the group was generally trying to be fairly secretive. Uh, According to witness accounts, the crew said that they were testing experimental craft. And if you've got a new and improved airship design that you're testing, you don't want too much attention because there was a race among inventors at the time to build better airships. And you don't want someone else learning about your design and stealing aspects of it, especially if you haven't yet secured a patent on it from the U.S. Patent Office. So traveling at night would mean fewer people would see the airship and there would be less attention than if they'd been regularly flying around in the daytime. Another possible reason, although it's a little surprising, is that it may have been more comfortable for the crew. According to an account published on Sunday, May 16th in the Dallas Morning News, a witness met the owner of an airship after it startled his horses. Uh, The owner was a man named Mr. Wilson, and the paper reported, As a reason for traveling almost entirely by night, Mr. Wilson stated that it was because they had not yet become accustomed to being in such dizzy heights, and they feared to see the distance below them. They are not aeronauts and do not claim to possess the nerves or coolness of that class of people. At the time, aeronauts were people who went up in balloons, and most people had never had a perspective from off the ground. Uh, You might climb a tree, but that would be about it. And even today, many people are afraid of heights, and lots of people were afraid, were and are afraid of going up in airplanes, despite the fact that airplanes are a totally normal thing now. I happen to be one of those people. I will fly, but I don't like it. I'm not afraid of heights, but I am afraid of crashes. And even though I know the air safety statistics, that doesn't make the fear vanish. So I'm like Zephram Cochran. I didn't build this ship to usher in a new era for humanity. You think I want to go to the stars? I don't even like to fly. I take trains. So you can imagine how a group of engineer inventor types could be freaked out by traveling hundreds of feet in the air when that's a completely new experience for you. And so by traveling at night, you just largely looked down and saw darkness. You weren't hit in the face with the reality of how high up you were, and you and your crew might feel more comfortable. Michael Busby also proposes another reason that the airships would travel by night, which was to keep from getting shot at, because people like shooting at things. Uh, As we discussed in episode 189 on the Hindenburg disaster, when the first hydrogen-filled balloon was tested in Paris, France in in 1783, it flew 13 miles to a nearby village, and by that point it had lost enough hydrogen that it started to descend. The villagers thought it was a monster attacking them from the sky, so they did what you should do if a monster is attacking you from the sky. 
they attacked it right back and defended the village using pitchforks, scythes, and short-barreled blunderbuss guns to destroy the menacing creature. Here in America, there are newspaper accounts of people on the ground shooting at airships, including a whole bunch of guys who were doing a military drill, and when an airship flew over, they opened fire on it. And by traveling in the darkness, there would be fewer people out and about who would be likely to shoot you, and they'd also be less likely to hit you in the darkness. On the other hand, in his book, The Great Airship of 1897, author Alan Danilek proposes another reason. He writes, Besides the desire to maintain a degree of secrecy, the most practical reason would be ship control. Since gas expands when it is heated, the prospect of flying the airship on a sunny day would have proven problematic, especially considering the primitive technology available to our vessel at the time. Once the sun heated the envelope, the hydrogen gas would expand dramatically, resulting in the ship becoming too light and possibly initiating an uncontrolled ascent, a major danger since our airship is designed only for low-altitude flight. Correcting such a rapid ascent could only have been achieved by quickly valving off large amounts of hydrogen, which could prove even more dangerous if too much gas were valved off, putting the ship in an uncontrollable descent. Flying chiefly at night, however, would alleviate this problem, making the ship potentially more flyable after sunset. Additionally, since creating large amounts of hydrogen would have been a slow and expensive process at the time, it would also have been cheaper to fly at night and require a shorter turnaround time between flights. Another reason night flying would have been a more attractive option is that the air tends to be more stable and less turbulent at night than it is during the heat of the day. So there are multiple reasons why the airships would be primarily active at night. You said that Busby was able to estimate where they had a landing area in Texas. What did he find? Basically, he identified a location in North Texas. It was just north of Sherman, Texas, which is itself just south of the Oklahoma border. He did this by triangulating sightings made on April 14th, 1897. Then he did the same thing, the same kind of calculation, for sightings made the next day on April 15th. And both times, the sightings and trajectories indicated the airship had probably originated from a spot north of Sherman, Texas, although the results from the second night could indicate that it was between Sherman, Texas and nearby Paris, Texas. Now, Sherman, Texas is in Grayson County and Paris, Texas is in Lamar County. Between Grayson and Lamar counties is Fannin County. If the hiding place was north of and between Sherman and Paris, it would have been in Fannin County. So, Remember the name Fannin County because it will come up later. It's very significant that he got the same location, the same general location, based on the sightings from two different days. If these were just random fake reports, you wouldn't expect the triangulation to converge on a specific location, much less the same location two days in a row. So that's a sign that the reports were accurate. If the airships were coming into land in the same area before dawn each night, you'd expect people in the area to notice that. Like the rest of America, Texas was heavily agricultural in the 1890s, and people on farms get up before daylight to start their chores. So you'd expect someone there to be aware of the ship landing. Correct. And that's exactly what Busby thinks is the case. Uh, he believes that there was a specific ranch where they were landing, 
and that the airship crews knew the owner of this ranch and that the owner was giving them shelter by letting them park on his property during the daytime. We'll have more about uh, to say about that later in the episode, so remember it. You keep referring to airships in the plural. Why do you do that? Do we have reason to think that there was more than one airship? We do. As we mentioned last episode, there are more than a thousand press stories about the airship, and they report sightings within a seven-month period. Even counting duplicate stories that were published by multiple papers and further reducing the number because of misidentifications and hoaxes, that's just too many sightings for one airship, especially when you take into account the fact that the airships were sighted in widely separated locations at the same time. Now, that doesn't apply so much to phase one of the airship flap, which was during November and December of 1896. Then all the sightings were on the West Coast. But it does apply to phase two, which began in February of 1897 in the middle of America. For example, at the same time that there were credible airship sightings in Texas, there was also an airship being reported in Washington state and another on the other side of the country up north in Michigan. Furthermore, the airships are described as having different characteristics. For example, most of the time, it's estimated to be something like 150 to 200 feet long by witnesses. But sometimes it's much smaller, being estimated to be only 50 to 75 feet long. Of course, it could be somewhere in the middle with both of those estimates being in error, but it's at least suggestive of more than one airship. Also, the crews are different. Sometimes the crew is just one guy, sometimes it's several men, and sometimes it's men with at least one woman along. Perhaps most fundamentally, when people were in contact with the crew, the crew reportedly said that there was more than one airship. For example, the crew that spoke with Judge Albert Love claimed that there were 10 airships touring the U.S., but most of what they said is hard to believe, so we shouldn't put too much weight in that. Then there was a piece published on Saturday, April 24th in the Shreveport Times, where a gentleman named H.C. Legrone of Deadwood, Texas, claimed to have received a message from the crew that had been dropped in a beer bottle. And the message stated that the ship that dropped it was one of five that were part of a group of airships. On Friday, April 30th, the Houston Post published another piece in which Legrone stated that he had met the crew of an airship and they told him that it was one of five that were part of a group. Yeah, but that's just one source, Mr. Legrone. Uh, true, uh, but I did confirm that H.C. or Hi Hiram Clark Legrone was a real person who did live in Deadwood in the late 1800s. In fact, his father, Adam, was the founder of Deadwood and Hiram wrote the Deadwood News but he could have been making it up. However, examples like these illustrate how people at the time understood there to be more than one airship, and we have other accounts of people at the time saying that there was more than one. For example, we'll be hearing about an attorney uh, in San Francisco who said that he was in touch with the airship creators and that there was more than one airship creator. So that one of the creator, he also said that one of the creators already had two airships and was building a third. So if one inventor had three airships and there was more than one inventor, that would suggest at least four airships. Based on all this, Michael Busby thinks that there were five airships in total, 
and three of them, including a smaller, including a smaller one, were operating in Texas in April of 1897. What do you think of this claim? I don't think it's implausible. Uh, at the time, there were lots of inventors trying to come up with new improved airship designs. And like any people who are intensely interested in an activity or hobby, some of them likely knew each other. Uh, they may have formed an airship inventors club as a social group, or they may have formed a business interest where they pooled their resources to work on their designs. And then they decided to have a group event where they would go out and start testing their designs at the same time, perhaps as a final testing run to uh, perhaps in part create a sense of mystery and get publicity in anticipation of a big public reveal. Now, not all of the airships being reported may have been part of this effort. Given how many people were working on the problem, there could have been some unrelated efforts that also were being tested at this time, and they got lumped in with the big test being done by this group. But that's not at all an unreasonable scenario. It explains why we have indications of multiple airships, and it explains why all the airships were being tested at the same time. Is there any way to figure out who the airship creators may have been? Our starting point for that would be things that the crew reportedly said when they talked to witnesses. Now, as we said last episode, we shouldn't automatically believe everything the crew is reported to have said. We saw a really good example of that last episode with the encounter where the crew allegedly told Judge Albert Love that they were from the unbelievable North Pole land. You know, that was kind of an outlier. It was the only time I know of that a story that bizarre was reportedly told. But the airship crews were being secretive, and they likely told some false stories as misdirection to throw people off the trail. Furthermore, witnesses may have remembered, may have misremembered or simply been making stuff up. But if we can verify things that the crew said, they need to be taken more seriously. So let's look at an encounter that took place in Uvalde, Texas. On Saturday, April 24th, 1897, the Galveston Daily News printed the following story. The airship in West Texas landed in the town of Uvalde. Sheriff Baylor interviewed the men. It started from Goshen, New York, and is on a trial trip. Navigator Wilson left a message for his friend, Akers. Uvalde, Texas, April 22nd. That Uvalde has been visited by the famous airship that has created so much excitement in Texas the past week or more, there is no room to doubt. The airship was sighted by Sheriff H.W. Baylor about 10 o'clock Tuesday evening, April 20th. Mr. Baylor's attention was first attracted by a bright light and the sound of strange voices in the alley back of his residence. He went out to investigate and was surprised to find there the airship ship and crew of three men. They stated they were on a trial run and did not wish their presence known to the people of the town. One of the men, who gave his name as Wilson and place of residence as Goshen, New York, inquired for Captain C.C. Akers, former sheriff of Zavala County, who we understood lived in this section. He said he had met Captain Akers in Fort Worth in 1877 and liked him very much and would be much pleased to meet him again. When told that Captain Akers was at Eagle Pass in the Customs Service, but often visited this place, he asked to be remembered to the captain on the occasion of his next visit. After procuring water at the hydrant in Mr. Baylor's yard, the men boarded the ship, its great wings and fins were set in motion, 
and it sped away northward in the direction of San Angelo. Mr. Baylor is thoroughly reliable, and his statement is undoubtedly true. His description of the ship does not differ materially from that given by Mr. J. R. Ligon of Beaumont and the gentleman who saw it at Greenville. County Clerk Henry J. Bowles also claims to have seen the airship as it passed up Getty Street north of the Baylor residence. I checked on the people named in this story, and H.W. Baylor was a real historical individual. He was the son of a Confederate general, and he was the sheriff of Uvalde. So here we have a law enforcement officer reporting what the crew told him. I also checked on the county clerk, Henry J. Bowles, who also saw the airship on this occasion, and he also is real. I found a 1907 record of his successor as Uvalde County Clerk, a woman named Miss Zena Dalrymple. And the piece mentions that her predecessor in the post was Henry Bowles, so he was real too. Finally, I checked on the man that the airship navigator said he wanted to meet, Captain C.C. Akers, the former sheriff of Zavala County, Texas, and he's also real. I found a record indicating that in 1888 he had been sheriff of Zavala County, though by 1897 he was working for the U.S. Customs Service. So all three of the men in this story are real. All three of them were government officials, two sheriffs and and a county clerk. So it's a credible story. Now, according to Sheriff Baylor, the navigator of the airship was a man named Mr. Wilson. He was from Goshen, New York, and he wanted to meet former Sheriff C.C. Akers, who he said he'd met in Fort Worth in 1877. But Akers was now at Eagle Pass, Texas, which is right down on the Mexican border. And if he wanted to meet Akers and be able to and have Akers be able to remember him, then the name he gave would need to be his true one. He really would need to be named Wilson. Still, that's just one report using that name, so it could be wrong. However, three days later, on Tuesday, April 27th, a different newspaper, the San Antonio Express, printed this story. The airship at Eagle Pass. Sheriff Dow interviews its passengers. Mexicans much wrought up by the alighting of the ship on the banks of the Rio Grande. A description. Eagle Pass, Texas, April 25th. Eagle Pass, though away out on the Mexican border and a little slow on up-to-date civilization, cannot be outdone when it comes to real sound knowledge and alert county officials. The learned folks of the border have been watching with interest the various accounts of the airship seen at so many different places simultaneously and the various descriptions of it, and had come to the conclusion that there was a whole fleet of airships, else the whole thing was a huge joke perpetuated upon a defenseless public by the heartless newspaper fraternity. Today, however, all is changed. The whole border is in a state of excitement. The Mexican element is in a frenzy. Crowds of Aztec descendants are gathered on different corners discussing a strange occurrence of last night, April 24. While the majority spend the hours on their knees begging to be saved, others expostulate and interpret the vision as an evil omen or a good spirit, according to their own superior knowledge. The express reporter's attention was attracted, and he immediately went in quest of Sheriff R.W. Dow, whom he found in a great state of excitement 
relating his experiences to a group of substantial citizens. The reporter waited till the sheriff gained his equilibrium and got the following account of the cause of the commotion. Last night, about twelve o'clock, some Mexicans came running to my house and told me that a very strange thing of some kind had come down from above and stopped on the bank of the Rio Grande just below Fort Duncan. I went at once to the place and found an airship and three men on board. They were just from Uvalde and claimed that they had solved the problem of traveling by air. They are going from here to the Devil's River country to locate a herd of buffalo that was seen over there some time ago by Mr. Duval West and some hunters from Galveston. The men are all well known in West Texas, but do not care to have their identity known to the public just yet. One of the men inquired for Captain C.C. Akers of this place, but was told Mr. Akers was over the river counting some sheep that Mr. Shrimp is getting ready to ship to market. They filled their canteens with water from the Rio Grande and flew off. They invited me to accompany them, but district court being in session, I could not accept. Mr. Dow says it was so dark that he could not see the vessel, so as to describe it, but he saw the men board it and fly away. I checked, and Sheriff R.W. Dow was a real individual. I found a table of Texas County officials from 1899, and he was the sheriff of Maverick County, whose seat is Eagle Pass. According to Sheriff Dow, the airship crew said that they had come from Uvalde, where they had been three days earlier, according to Sheriff Baylor, so that corresponds. Sheriff Dow didn't say what their names were, since he wanted to keep that quiet, or since they wanted to keep that quiet, though he did say they were well-known in West Texas. And he said that they were looking for Captain C.C. Akers, though he wasn't there at the moment. Instead, he was over the Rio Grande in Mexico on business, which would have been with his current job with the U.S. Customs Service. So the airship travelers left. Since Mr. Wilson told Sheriff Baylor that he'd met Captain Akers in Fort Worth in 1877 and Akers was a real individual, it would be very interesting to know if Akers could confirm having met him. Yeah, it would be very interesting to know that. And the editors of the Galveston Daily News thought so, too. So they followed up and asked Captain Akers, and they printed his response the day after the ship visited Eagle Pass on Wednesday, April 28th. Airship inventor Wilson was of a mechanical turn of mind and formerly lived in Fort Worth, remembered by his friend, who says he promised to startle the world with his aerial invention. Eagle Pass, Texas, April 27th. Noting that on the airship said to have been seen by Sheriff Baylor in Uvalde was a man who gave his name as Wilson. I can say that while living in Fort Worth in 76 and 77, I was well acquainted with a man by the name of Wilson from New York State and was on very friendly terms with him. He was of a mechanical turn of mind and was working on aerial navigation and something that would astonish the world. He was a finely educated man, then about 24 years of age, and seemed to have money with which to prosecute his investigations, devoting his whole time to them. From conversations we had while in Fort Worth, I think that Mr. Wilson, having succeeded in constructing a practical airship, would probably hunt me up to show me that he was not so wild in his claims as I then supposed. I will say further that I have known Sheriff Dow many years, and know that any statement he may make can be relied on as correct. C.C. Akers. 
So there we have it. A real known individual confirms that he did know a New Yorker named Wilson in Fort Worth in 1876 and 77, that Wilson was well-educated, that he had a mechanical bent to his mind, that he was working on the problem of aerial navigation, that he had money, and that the two were friends to the point that he thought Wilson would come try to look him up to show him that he'd finally succeeded with his airship designs. So it looks like one of the people involved with the airships really was named Wilson. But if there was more than one airship designer, do we have any idea of the other names? We do. Uh, There were multiple airships and airship crews, and when people talked to them, they gave several names that Michael Busby followed up on in in his book. We won't go into all of them, but here's a story that ran in the Dallas Morning News on Monday, April 19th, about an encounter in Stephenville, Texas. The Great Aerial Wanderer. It is either a reality or Ananias and Safiba were mere amateurs. Found on the ground at Greenville and Stephenville and exploded at Decatur. Stephenville, Texas, April 17th. This afternoon, Mr. C.L. McElhaney, a prominent farmer who lives three miles down the Bosque from here, came into the news correspondent's office and before seating himself, he said, I have found it. Found what? Found the airship the Dallas News has been talking about. It's no joke. I discovered the ship on the ground early this morning, April 17th. It was in charge of two men, one an engineer and the other a pilot. They had been compelled to come to the ground to make repairs on the machinery. I at once came to Stephenville and reported my find. I got a large number of our citizens who at once proceeded to the spot to view the aerial monster. Among those who viewed the wonderful machine were Colonel James U. Vincent, Eugene Moore of the Stephenville Empire, Mr. Charles Bassel of the Stephenville Journal, Judge W.W. W. Morse, Senator L.N. Frank, Mr. M.F. Martin, Dr. S.D. Naylor, Judge Thomas B. King, Mr. J.C. George, Dr. M. Day, J.H. Cage, S. Frank, W.P. Orr, Mayor of the City, James Collins, Mr. Lee Young, Dr. R.S. Cameron, Dr. J.H. Stewart, A.M. Borders, S.C. Buck, Honorable J.T. Daniel, ex-District Attorney, Honorable J.W. Carker, District Attorney, Otho S. Houston, and Honorable J.S. Strawn, District Judge, and many other of our prominent citizens. The airship ship is very much as reported by the news heretofore. It consists of a cigar-shaped body about 60 feet in length, to which is attached two immense aeroplanes, that is, wings and the motive power is an immense wheel at each end, an appearance much like a metallic windmill. It is driven by an immense electric engine, which derives its power from storage batteries. The crew consisted, as stated, of two men who gave their names as S.E. Tillman and A.E. Dalbear. They report they have been making an experimental trip to comply with a contract with certain capitalists of New York who are backing them. They are confident they have achieved a great success and that, in a short time, the navigation of the air will be an assured fact. They refuse to have their machine critically inspected, and refuse to talk further as to their plans for the future. They rapidly made the necessary repairs, boarded the ship, and bidding adieu to the astonished crowd assembled, the ship rose gently into the air and sailed off in a southwesterly direction. 
If you don't believe me, just ask any one of these men who saw it and say, I want to tell the news about it. This is one time old Erath County, Texas is ahead. The first place the airship has been seen to light. And say, what do you reckon is going to happen when dynamiters get to riding in airships and dropping bombs down on folks in cities? Is this world ready for airships? Without an answer, Mr. McElhaney went forth to tell the news. Now, Erath County, Texas was not actually the first place that an airship was seen to have landed, but McElhaney gave an impressive list of names, as Michael Busby summarizes. The distinguished list includes a colonel, a railroad executive, a newspaper man, two judges, a senator, four doctors, the mayor of Stephenville, a district attorney, an ex-district attorney, a district judge, and other prominent citizens. I didn't check every name on the lengthy list, but I did check multiple ones, and I can report that Eugene Moore was real, and he was the owner of the Stephenville Empire. Uh, Charles Bassel was also real, and he was the publisher of the Stephenville Journal. Louis Napoleon Frank was real, and he was a Texas senator. Thomas Benton King was real, and he was a judge in Erath County. Mayor W.P. Orr was real, and I found a record of him. J.S. Strayen was real, and he was a judge. After verifying that many distinguished individuals, I gave up on looking for more. And it's quite unlikely that a farmer, you know, just a local farmer like McElhaney, would lie in print about so many prominent local individuals having seen the ship, and less likely still that he would invite the newspaper to check with them. Uh, the local publishers of the Stephenville Empire and the Stephenville Journal alone could have made his life hell by attacking him in the local papers if he was lying, which makes what Mr. McElhaney said worth paying attention to. Uh, he said that the ship landed because it had something broken and, and needed repairs, which is a common reason the ship was said to have landed. And it's exactly what you'd expect of an experimental vessel using new technology on a shakedown cruise. He also said that the airship was being financed by backers in New York. So there's our New York connection again, like with Mr. Wilson of New York. And he gave the names of the two men aboard the ship. He said that one was named S.E. Tillman and the other was named A.E. Dahlbear. Both Tillman and Dahlbear are very uncommon names. And in this case, he gave us their first and middle initials as well, which should make it easy to find them if they were real people. You said that Michael Busby thought he had located where the Texas airships were parked during the daytime, that it was located in North Texas near the Oklahoma border, and that it was a specific ranch whose owner was sheltering their project from public view. Was he able to identify a specific ranch? He was, and on Saturday, April 24th, the Galveston Daily News ran this story. At Conroe. Conroe, Montgomery County, Texas, April 23rd. Our little city is all agog today over the report of a most remarkable incident that occurred last night at the hotel. Professor G.L. Witherspoon, proprietor of that hostelry, Major Dan D. Donahue, auditor of the Texas, Louisiana, and Eastern Railroad, Colonel A.H. Trailer, tax collector, and John Waringerger, merchant, were engaged until one o'clock 
in a social game of dominoes when they were disturbed by a call from three strangers who said they were from San Francisco, California. They were most reliable gentlemen and made no hesitancy in stating they were traveling in an airship from San Francisco en route to Cuba via El Paso, Conroe, and New Orleans. They had left the ship at Williams Ranch near town and walked in to get supper by way of a change. Major Donahue says that he feels like he has interviewed natives of the moon, as heretofore he has scoffed at the idea of an airship, and he and his friends on last night gracefully declined an invitation to inspect the wonderful aerial traveling machine, but when, less than an hour after his midnight visitors had taken their leave, he saw the ship rise majestically from the Earth, illuminated by brilliant electric lights, and plow its way through space, his skepticism vanished, and the strange reality of an airship was stamped on his senses and vision. Major Donahue is one of the most popular citizens, and in the main, a quiet and most unassuming gentleman and his statements, especially when corroborated by the evidence of such gentlemen as Messrs. Witherspoon, Trailer, and Warrenberger, are accepted as gospel truth. They say that the ship must have been 30 feet wide and 50 feet long. They watched it until it looked like a bright star just above the Earth's horizon, and the Major declares he was sober. Incidentally, uh, dominoes has been a popular game in Texas. It's not like that sinful card playing, so good... God-fearing Texans could play dominoes instead, like my own family, for instance. Dominoes are so much more wholesome and so much less sinful. Now, I checked, and G.L. Witherspoon was a real individual, and he did run the Conroe Hotel, just as the story says. According to the story, the men were playing dominoes when, at 1 a.m., three strangers showed up at the hotel. They said they were from San Francisco, which is where Phase 1 of the airship sighting started. And they said they were heading for Cuba. So there's the Cuba story again, which other airship crew members had told. The men said that after parking their airship at a nearby ranch, they decided to go into town to get supper for once instead of just eating at the ranch or on the ship, I guess. And after they left, Mr. Witherspoon and the other men saw the airship in flight. Now, the key thing for our purposes is the name of the ranch. They said that it was the Williams Ranch and that it was near the town of Conroe. Conroe is down south near Houston, and Williams is a pretty common name, and there might be more than one Williams Ranch near Conroe. But another clue was in the newspaper record as early as Saturday, April 10th, two weeks earlier, when the Dallas Morning News reported about a man working on an airship at a ranch near Paris, Texas, owned by a man called U.S. Marshal Williams. That doesn't give us Williams's first name, but it does tie the airships to a ranch owned by a U.S. Marshal whose name was Williams, and that makes him easy to find, because there aren't many U.S. Marshals in Texas named Williams. In fact, I checked a chronological state-by-state -state list of all the U.S. Marshals that have existed since the office was created in 1789, and there has only been one U.S. Marshal named Williams in the entire history of Texas. So he's definitely the one that the Dallas Morning News was referring to. His name was John Shelby, or Sheb Williams, Jr., 
He was born in 1848 in Sonoma County, California, and he grew up in nearby Butte County, California. As we'll soon hear, Butte County, California is a probable location for where some of the airship developers were based, so Marshall Williams may have known them. And that could be why he offered to let them use his property to house the airships during the daytime, which would be a really good move for the airship inventors. As Michael Busby states, It is reasonable to believe that airship captains would choose to keep their vessels out of sight on the secluded ranch of a longtime friend who could legally enforce a no-trespassing edict. So Marshall Williams could have been a very useful friend to them. At this point in the story, we have two Williams ranches, one down near Houston in Conroe, Texas, and one up near Paris, Texas, where Marshall Williams was living. Did he own both of them? What we know for a fact is that Marshall Williams owned a ranch near Paris. It was located in Fannin County, and that's the exact location that Busby calculated the airships were being housed based on his triangulation of the April 15th sightings. So, since we have the the Dallas Morning News reporting that a man was working on an airship at Marshall Williams' ranch near Paris, and that's the same place where Busby calculated the ships were housed, it looks like we've identified their normal daytime hiding place. Busby writes, We estimated the general area of the airship's daytime lair using a tried-and-true mathematical method called triangulation. The estimate pinpoints the lair somewhat north and west of Bonham. This estimate comes from shooting a back azimuth using sighting information from the newspaper accounts, an approximation, as several factors influence the results. The most obvious problem with shooting a back azimuth is the assumption that the object was traveling in a straight line. Wind and course changes can make such an approach to determining the flight origination of airships somewhat inaccurate. The back azimuth estimate is a in-the-ballpark estimate. We were certainly in the ballpark with this one. The back azimuth estimate was off by only about 15 miles. The evidence identifying John Shelby Williams Ranch as the location of the airship's daytime lair is incontrovertible. So we've got a really good identification of the North Texas location of the daytime hiding spot. But... What about the second Williams Ranch down near Conroe? Conroe is near the Texas State Prison System, which is in nearby Huntsville. And Conroe was in Marshall Williams' territory, and he would have spent some time near the prison system headquarters. So it's possible that he also owned a ranch near Conroe. Or it's possible that he had a relative named Williams in Conroe who owned a ranch. And maybe he got the relative to let the three San Francisco gentlemen park an airship there. But even if you throw out the Conroe sighting reported in the Galveston Daily News, we still have really good evidence for the North Texas Ranch being the main daytime hiding place, as illustrated by the Dallas Morning News reporting of an airship being worked on there and Busby's calculations based on the sightings and flight paths of the ships. There's one more possible lead for an airship person's name that we should look at. Last episode, we heard the story related by Judge Albert Love, who said the airship crew told a fantastic tale of being from North Pole land. But they also said that they would be exhibiting their airships in Nashville on June 18th and 19th at the Tennessee Centennial Exposition. 
you said that an airship inventor contacted the Centennial Exposition about exhibiting his airship there. Do we know his name? We do. And it actually happened before June, which could be because of the plans the group changed. However, on Friday, May 7th, the San Antonio Light carried this story. Airship that moves. Professor Barnard gives an exhibition of his machine at Nashville and sails 15 miles. Nashville, Tennessee, May 6, 1897. Today at the Tennessee Centennial Exposition, Professor Arthur Barnard, physical instructor of the YMCA of Nashville, began a journey in an airship constructed by himself. Professor Barnard promised to sail against the wind after arising into the air, and he did so. The airship will be continued in use at the exposition. Professor Barnard said he would land at the starting point tonight. The ship is 46 feet long and 20 in diameter. Mr. Barnard, who returned with his airship tonight, says that he has perfected a machine which will fly under ordinary conditions. He said tonight that it was not perfect, nor could it be perfectly controlled. But he believed that he could perfect it so that its course could be controlled. After disappearing from view this morning, the ship circled around, the navigator hoping to meet with a favorable current. At last, the ship began to sail to the west, and Mr. Barnard says as far as Watkins, a village 15 miles from Nashville, the gas in the balloon attachment began to give out. He then sought a safe place to descend and came down easily. While aloft, a sudden gust broke one of the spans of the ship. No other damage was suffered. The entire time he was aloft was one and one and a half hours. He was returning along the line of the upward flight when he was forced to land. We now have an account of an airship being exhibited at the Tennessee Centennial Exposition by a real, live, known-to-exist person, so that's quite impressive. There are even pictures of the airship that Professor Barnard flew, but when you look at them, questions start arising. One of the things that's clear is that this was a design very different from the other airships that were reported. This was basically a balloon with a single man underneath it, using his feet to pump pedals that would crank a propeller, which is not surprising since Professor Barnard was a bicycle enthusiast, just like the Wright brothers, who developed powered flight just six years later. And then there is what is claimed to be a photograph of Professor Barnard's vehicle, and it confirms that it's a balloon with a long bar underneath it rather than a gondola, and wires hanging down to what looks like a bicycle and propeller mounting, though it's hard to tell in the photo since it's on the ground and there are people standing around it. But this thing is way more primitive than the other airships that we've been covering. It isn't remotely like them. So even though I don't want to take anything away from Professor Barnard's personal achievement, it looks to me like this is unrelated to the other more famous airships that were being reported. It's too primitive to be one of them. Now, I can't rule out that Professor Barnard was connected with the other airship inventors. He, he may have known them and even been part of their broader community, but I don't think we can count on this as solid evidence confirming the North Pole Land airship crew and what they told Judge Love. This looks like a coincidence. Still, at a minimum, uh, it shows just how many inventors there were at the time trying to crack this problem. We now have quite a number of names of people alleged to have been involved as possible airship creators. 
before we look and see if the named individuals actually existed, are there any other names we could, we should consider? There is one, and to reveal it, we need to go back to phase one of the airship reports in November and December of 1896 in California. So we're about to go all the way back to the very beginning and uncover how the phenomenon started. And before we go back, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Eric R., Patricia S., Evgeny G., Dixie P., and Father Terrence D. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by The Grady Group, a Catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the United States, using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients. Learn more at GradyGroupInc.com. And by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. Customs Matters Throughout the United States, visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com. So, Jimmy, how did the airship phenomenon begin? It's normally reckoned as beginning in November of 1896 in Sacramento, California. But there's actually evidence that it may have started earlier. There are scattered reports in the press in the preceding months of things that might have been airship sightings. For example, um, on Friday, October 23rd, the San Francisco Examiner ran a story titled Three Meteors in Line, in which they described the inhabitants of Nevada, California, or Nevada City, which is in Northern California, seeing a, quote, triple connected meteor, close quote. Now, you might think that this would mean three shooting stars in a line, in which case it would probably originally have just been a single meteoroid in space that then broke into three parts when it entered the atmosphere. And the phenomenon would have only lasted for a few seconds. But that wouldn't be particularly newsworthy. Um, and people back in the day used the word meteor to refer to more things than we do now. Originally, the term meteor uh, referred to any phenomenon occurring up in the sky. It comes from Greek roots that just mean something lifted high up. And it could refer to multiple things. For example, wind in the atmosphere was referred to as an aerial meteor. Rain, snow, and hail were referred to as aqueous meteors. Rainbows and auroras were referred to as luminous meteors, and lightning and shooting stars, which appeared to be fiery, were referred to as igneous meteors. So the statement about a triple connected meteor could indicate something other than what we today would think of. And so it could have been three airships in a line with their searchlights turned on. The same issue of the San Francisco Examiner also had an article titled A Queer Thing in the Sky, which said that visitors at the famous Cliff House in San Francisco had seen something that looked like a comet with a fiery head and tail zooming over the water. But comets don't whiz rapidly through the sky. They're very slow moving. You can't see them move with your eyes. So some have thought that this might have been an airship with its headlight turned on. 
The next day, Saturday the 24th, the Oakland Tribune also commented on the triple meteor, saying that it looked as if three luminous bodies were traveling, which isn't something you'd say about three shooting stars, because they were familiar. Um, So it could suggest airships. When the main phenomenon began, the San Francisco Call published an account of a hunter named Brown who reported having seen the airship three weeks earlier on October 31st. So that also would suggest that the airships were active in the area before the bulk of phase one began. That happened when the airship craze really kicked off the next month. In his book, The Great Airship of 1897, Alan Danilek writes, For the 30,000 or so residents of Sacramento, California, the evening of Tuesday, November 17, 1896, started as a rather ordinary and some might say gloomy one. Gray and rainy, the day had been marked by intermittent squalls and low-hanging clouds that cast a cool and chilly pall over the city, making for an unpleasant late autumn day. Such weather was not unusual for that time of year in Central California, of course, But as the city's kerosene streetlights began flickering on and people began making their way home, most were simply intent on getting there as quickly as possible and settling down for what promised to be, at least from all outward appearances, a quiet evening. This evening, however, would turn out to be anything but quiet. By most accounts, it was shortly after 8 o'clock that the object first appeared over the city, low on the eastern horizon. A bright, noiseless light that shone in sharp contrast to the chilly darkness that surrounded it. The object traveled slowly over the city in a generally westerly direction, at times seeming to fly no more than a few hundred feet over Sacramento's tallest buildings. Within half an hour, it had disappeared in the gloom, though not before passing over the Capitol building and being seen by dozens of people, including an assistant to the Secretary of State of California. The next day, under the headline Voices in the Sky, the Sacramento Evening Bee published a story about the airship appearing over the state capitol, which said, Last evening, between the hours of 6 and 7 o'clock, in the year of our Lord 1896, a most startling exhibition was seen in the sky in the city of Sacramento. People standing on the sidewalks at certain points in the city between the hours stated saw coming through the sky over the housetops what appeared to them to be merely an electric arc lamp propelled by some mysterious force. It came out of the east and sailed unevenly toward the southwest, dropping now nearer to the earth and now suddenly rising into the air again, as if the force that was whirling it through space was sensible of the dangers of collision with objects upon the earth. That much hundreds of the people saw. That much caused consternation in this city last night among groups gathered to hear the tale. What follows, some of the witnesses to the strange spectacle assert to be as true as the circumstances related. Voices in the Sky Startled citizens last night, living at points of the city along a rough diagonal line, yet far distant from each other, declare that they not only saw the phenomenon, but they also heard voices issuing from it in midair, not the whispering of angels, not the sepulchral mutterings of evil spirits, but the intelligible words and the merry laughter of humans. At those intervals where the glittering object, as if careless of its obligation to maintain a straightforward course, descended dangerously near the housetops, voices were heard in the sky saying, Lift her up, quick, you're making directly for that steeple. Then the light in the sky would be seen obeying some mystic touch 
and ascending to a considerable height from which it would take up again its southwesterly course. The light sailed along the line of K Street, so it appeared from those in the eastern part of the city, although it appears that after it had passed 14th Street, it was wafted far south of K. Laughter and words sounding strange in the distance, though fairly intelligible, fell upon the ears of pedestrians along the course of the light, who had paused to look up at the novelty. Coming to California Last night's B contained a telegram from New York announcing that a man had perfected an airship and would on Friday of this week, accompanied by one or two friends, ascend from a vacant lot in the metropolis and go directly to California, which he promised to reach in two days. The description furnished in the telegram included an apparatus which was electrical to supply light and power for the astonishing contrivance. It is not regarded as likely, in view of the announcement contained in the dispatch, that last night Sacramento was overswept by this aerial ship. But here is the incident. Here the chronicle of words heard of a strange spectacle witnessed. Whence the light, which is not a meteor, all agree, came whither it went, where it now is. These things it is not within the capacity of this article to deal with. Mr. Lusk's Story Charles Lusk, cashier of the Central Electric Street Railway Company, was at his home at 24th and O Streets last evening, when, having stepped outside, he saw the remarkable appearance in the sky. He went into the house and told the inmates of what he had seen. This morning, Mr. Lusk mentioned the incident to some of the carmen and was amazed to learn from them that they had seen such a light, as he described, while they were in the neighborhood of East Park. More than that, they heard music and voices. One voice distinctly said, well, we ought to get to San Francisco by tomorrow noon. The Carmens say they caught some faint idea of the shape of the object that was floating in the air. It was of balloon shape, and they concluded that it was a balloon. The paper noted that the previous evening, they had published a telegram from New York announcing a planned air trip from New York City to California that was just about to happen. They thought that this was a coincidence, but there's our New York connection again. And to get from New York to Sacramento in two days, like the telegram said, they need to travel at an average rate of 59 miles an hour, which was the equivalent of what passenger trains were doing at the time. It's interesting that some of the witnesses reported hearing music from the airship, which was also reported on other occasions. And though Thomas Edison had invented the photograph 20 years earlier in 1877, it's unlikely that someone would be playing a phonograph and keeping the needle on the wax cylinders that were common at the time as the ships bouncing up and down in the air. It's more likely that some of the airship crew were playing instruments, perhaps fiddles or perhaps banjos, which were considered the electric guitars of the day. Since many more people played instruments back then than they do today, you know, because we now have recorded music and back then they usually didn't. So if you wanted music, you often had to make it yourself. They also, the airship crew, were reported to be singing. In its reporting of the event, the San Francisco Call says, E. Wenzel, who was employed at Shell's Brewery, claims that when it passed over him, the occupants were trolling a merry chorus which, though distant, sounded sweet and clear in the evening air. One of the witnesses reported that he couldn't quite make out the words, but the tune that he heard them singing was, Just Tell Them That You Saw Me. 
which was a popular song at the time. It had been published the previous year in 1895. And just so you'll know what it sounded like, here's the first verse. Strolling down the street one eve upon mere pleasure bent. Twas after business worries of the day. I saw a girl who shrank from me and whom I recognized. My schoolmate in a village far away. Is that you, Madge? I said to her. She quickly turned away. Don't turn away, Madge. I am still your love that the witnesses heard the crew saying, lift her up quick. You're making directly for that steeple. And well, we ought to get to San Francisco by tomorrow noon. And perhaps they did. But if so, they apparently came back to Sacramento because they flew over it again six days later. Alan Danilek reports, the mysterious light seemed to enjoy a certain notoriety that made it difficult to ignore, especially when it decided to make a repeat appearance this time not only over Sacramento, but in the largest city in the state, San Francisco. And what was to be even more remarkable this time, it would make its presence known over both cities, separated by a distance of nearly 90 miles on the same night. The evening of November 22nd was a night very much like that of the 16th, overcast and cool, but drier and with a light but persistent wind. As it had only a week earlier, the light again appeared over Sacramento, shortly after dusk, the only difference being that this time it appeared in the northwest skies rather than the eastern sky. And even more interestingly, it appeared to be moving steadily against the prevailing light winds rather than being driven along by them. Fortunately, in that the 22nd was a Sunday evening, considerably more people were available to witness the craft's appearance. Amongst them, at least according to some reports, the city's deputy sheriff and his district attorney all of whom watched the craft for almost half an hour as it flew slowly over the city or finally disappearing over the western horizon. Had the spectacle been confined to the state capitol, it would have been newsworthy enough, but the mysterious craft was not done yet. Just a few hours after being seen in the skies over Sacramento, the strange craft appeared over San Francisco, where, at least according to the papers the next day, it was supposedly observed by hundreds of the city's leading citizens, including its mayor. Some witnesses even reported seeing it cruising above one of San Francisco's most famous landmarks, the Cliff House, where it was seen to use its powerful searchlight to frighten the seals on Seal Rock, sending them plunging into the sea in panic, before heading off to the northeast and disappearing into the heavy overcast. After this, the sightings continued to happen, and they spread up and down the west coast. Danilek states, it's not surprising that accounts of the mysterious airship soon began appearing 
in newspapers not only in the California area, but all over the Pacific coast. To that effect, over the next few weeks, it was supposedly spotted flying over a dozen cities in California, mostly in the Napa Valley area and in and around San Francisco. On the evening of November 25th alone, it supposedly appeared over 11 different cities and towns around the state. Newspapers even reported the airship as far north as Seattle, Washington, and as far south as San Diego, making the mysterious craft appear to be capable of flying vast distances and at speeds that appeared to be well beyond human comprehension for that era. Danilek tends to assume that there was only one airship, but this also could be explained by there being multiple airships that were being test-flown, which is the theory that I would tend to favor. Now, it was at this point that a new figure enters our story. His name was George D. Collins, and he was a prominent attorney in San Francisco at the time. On Sunday, April 22nd, the San Francisco Chronicle published a story under the headline, A Lawyer's Word for That Airship. It read, in part, There is a San Francisco attorney, George D. Collins, who asserts that the airship exists, that the inventor is his client, that the strange craft sailed without mishap from Oroville to San Francisco, that it did pass over Sacramento on its way to the bay and that within a few days this invention, which is the solution of one of the world's oldest and toughest problems, will be navigated in daylight so that all San Francisco may see it, and that it will circle and rise and sink over the central part of the city. Attorney Collins, who occupies offices on the second floor of the Crocker Building, was seen about the matter at his home in Alameda last night. Just as a point of reference, Oroville, California, is a town about 150 miles north of San Francisco, in Butte County, and Alameda, where Mr. Collins lived, is, of course, the location of the nuclear vessels. He said, it is perfectly true that there is at last a successful airship in existence, and that California will have the honor of bringing it before the world. I have known of the affair for some time, and am acting as attorney for the inventor. He is a very wealthy man who has been studying the subject of flying machines for 15 years, and who came here seven years ago from the state of Maine, in order to be able to perfect his ideas away from the eyes of other inventors. During the last five years, he has spent at least $100,000 on his work. He has not yet secured his patent, but his application is now in Washington. I cannot say much about the machine he has perfected because he is my client. And besides, he fears that the application will be stolen from the patent office if people come to know that his invention is practicable. I saw the machine one night last week at the inventor's invitation. It is made of metal, is about 150 feet long, and is built to carry 15 persons. There was no motive power as far as I could see, certainly no steam. It is built on the aeroplane, that is, wing system, and has two canvas wings 18 feet wide and a rudder shaped like a bird's tail. The inventor climbed into the machine, and after he'd been moving some of the mechanism for a moment, I saw the thing begin to ascend from the earth very gently. The wings flapped slowly as it rose and then a little faster as it began to move against the wind. The machine was under perfect control all the time. When it got to a height of about 90 feet, the inventor shouted to me that he was going to make a series of circles and then descend. He immediately did so, beginning by making a circle about 100 yards diameter and gradually narrowing in till the machine got within 30 feet of the ground. It then fell straight down very gracefully and touched the earth as lightly as a falling leaf. The reports from Sacramento the other night were true, 
It was my client's airship that the people saw. It started from Oroville in Butte County that evening and flew 65 miles in a straight line directly over Sacramento. After running up and down once or twice over the capital, my friend came right on a distance of another 70 miles and landed at a spot on this side of the bay where the machine now lies, guarded by three men. The inventor found during this trial trip that his ship had a wave-like motion that made him seasick. It is this defect that he is now remedying. In another six days, the trouble will be done away with, and it is then his intention to immediately give the people of San Francisco a chance to see his machine. He will fly right over the city and cross Market Street a dozen times. I cannot tell you where he is housing the ship or what his name is, as I am under the pledge of secrecy. But it is a fact that the machine does its work perfectly and will astound the world and revolutionize travel when it has been displayed before the public. The inventor can fly with it to New York tomorrow if he wants to. He has forsaken the ideas of Maxim and Langley entirely in building the machine and has constructed it on an absolutely new theory. So the key takeaways from that are that the ship's inventor was a client of Collins's. He was from the state of Maine and had moved to the area seven years earlier, around 1889. He had spent at least $100,000 or $3.6 million after all the inflation the government has caused on developing his airship. Collins saw a private demonstration of the airship, and he reported that its wings moved up and down, which was consistent with the way some airships were designed at the time, since the lifting power of a dirigible comes from the gas it contains. You don't need to generate lift with the wings, so they play a secondary role. Uh, Tests also revealed that the ship swayed in a way that made the inventor seasick, and he was trying to fix this. Although Collins didn't say so, the fact that the ship flew from Oroville in Butte County down to Sacramento suggests that Oroville is where it was built or at least was being stored, though he indicated that at the moment it was being stored closer to San Francisco. Now, as you'd expect, having a prominent local attorney say that the inventor of the airship was a client generated a lot of focus on Collins, and the papers pressed him for more details. The next day, on Monday, November 23rd, the Sacramento Evening Bee ran a story that said, This morning's San Francisco Chronicle announces that attorney Collins sticks to his story concerning the airship invention and its successful test. The Chronicle reporter remarked, Several people are wondering Mr. Collins how this inventor can house his 150-foot vessel in a barn in the vicinity of Berkeley without having the existence of such a large structure discovered. That is easily accounted for, Collins replied. The barn is not very long, but it is tacked on to an old dismantled two-story dwelling. The partitions have been knocked out, making the place practically one long room. Collins went on to say that none of the larger parts of the machine had been made in this state. They had been manufactured in various parts of the East and shipped to Orville and Stockton, where they had been gradually put together. When pressed to give some clue to the identity of the inventor, he said, Well, I will tell you this much. The man lives on the south side of Ellis Street in the 600 block. He's six feet tall and 40 years old, has no occupation, and is possessed of plenty of money. The place he lives in is a private house, where he has been for two years, making frequent trips during that time, to various places to look after the construction of his airship. He keeps his own counsel, and you won't be able to discover him. 
I can give you no closer information. Except that was all the information the reporters needed, and they immediately discovered the apparent inventor. The column immediately continued. There are 20 lodging houses in that portion of Ellis Street described by Collins. A complete search of all of them revealed the fact that in only one was there a lodger answering to the attorney's description of the inventor. This is 633 Ellis Street, rented by E.H. Kaiser. Kaiser has for two years leased his front room to a Dr. E.H. Benjamin. This gentleman is six feet in height, about 40 years of age, and as far as his mysterious habits are concerned, Kaiser said last night, we have had him in the house two years now and don't know any more about him than we did the day he came in. He goes away on little trips every little while to Orville, Sacramento, and Stockton, sometimes staying a few days, sometimes a month. He has plenty of means and fills in his time when he's at his room and experimenting with various metals, principally aluminum and sheet copper. He is a dentist by profession, I think. I know he has friends and one relative in Orville who are experimenting on some invention or other, but what it is, I don't know. He has told me once or twice that Attorney Collins does his law business for him. And I have often wondered what law business a dentist in a small way would be likely to have. Dr. Benjamin's name is not in the directory nor in the list of dentists in the city. Nobody could be found last night who had ever heard of him practicing his profession. His room contains very little to show what his real business is. There are a few drawings and charts scattered around bearing trigonometrical figures, two very ancient teeth on a mantel shelf, and a litter of aluminum and copper shavings all over the carpet. According to Kaiser's statement of his late movements, he was in Sacramento twice last week. He's been out very late at night during the last month and has not been home more than a few hours in the last two days, a record that fits in seemingly with the stories of the airship's movements. Up to 2 o'clock this morning, Benjamin had not returned to his room and the flying machine was at latest reports being steered by its proprietor over localities several miles away from Ellis Street. So, based on the information Collins gave them, the reporters were immediately able to identify the inventor as sometime dentist Dr. E.H. Benjamin. Uh, he didn't seem to be practicing dentistry at the moment, but he had plenty of money, and his movements corresponded to those of the airship. In any event, we now have the last name of the possible airship-related people that we'll be considering, Dr. E.H. Benjamin. And that makes six names. In addition to Dr. Benjamin, we earlier heard the names Wilson, S.E. Tillman, A.E. Dalbear, and Arthur Barnard, as well as John Shelby Williams, the ranch owner. What can we say about these men? Did they exist? And were they plausibly related to the airships? When it comes to Marshall Williams, he definitely existed. There are multiple records of him online, but his only involvement with the airships would appear to be allowing the crews to use one or more of his ranches in Texas as hiding places. That's plausible because he was raised in Butte County, California, and Butte County is where Oroville is. And we now have information connecting the airships to Oroville, so that's at least possible. When it comes to Barnard, he was a real person, and there's no doubt that he worked on airships or that he showed one at the Tennessee Centennial Exposition. However, his airship it was so primitive that it doesn't match the descriptions of the ones we've been covering. So I don't think he was a likely part of the same group. He may have known of them as people involved in the same activity, but his 
appearance seems to be more of a coincidence to me. Our two most promising names, because of how specific they are, are S.E. Tillman and A.E. Dahlbear. And both of these men were real and are easy to find records of online. S.E. Tillman was Professor Samuel E. Tillman. He was born in Tennessee in 1847, and he graduated from West Point in 1869. He eventually returned to West Point as a professor of chemistry, mineralogy, and geology. He then became superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy, and upon his retirement, he was promoted to Brigadier General. A.E. Dahlbear was Professor Amos E. Dahlbear. He was born in Connecticut in 1837, and he received his Ph.D. from the University of Michigan in 1883. He served as a professor of natural sciences at several universities, and he taught subjects like chemistry, physics, and astronomy. He's famous for publishing a formula that let you tell the air temperature from the rate at which a cricket chirps. This is known as Dolbear's Law, and it was mentioned on the TV show The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> What's that? Sounds like a cricket. Hang on. <laughs> Based on the number of chirps per minute and the ambient temperature in this room, it is a snowy tree cricket. A frickin' break. How could you possibly know that? In 1890, Emile Dolbert determined that there was a fixed relationship between the number of chirps per minute of the snowy tree cricket and the ambient temperature, a precise relationship that is not present with ordinary field crickets. The details in that aren't all correct, but you get the idea. Concerning Dolbert's achievements, Michael Busby writes Among the inventions that he has perfected are the electric gyroscope used to demonstrate the rotation of the Earth in 1867 tuning forks for the exhibition of Lissajous Curves in 1872, and the opatoscope for the exhibition of vocal vibrations. In 1873, he began to study the convertibility of sound into electricity, and in 1876, perfected and patented his magnetoelectric telephone, the basis for his lawsuit against Alexander Graham Bell for patent infringement, and the static telephone in 1879. He published The Art of Projecting, 1876, The Speaking Telephone, 1877, and Sound and Its Phenomena, 1885. In 1882, Professor Dahlbear communicated over a distance of a quarter mile without wires. This fact is particularly noteworthy because it proves Professor Dahlbear preceded radio pioneers Hertz and Marconi. Professor Dahlbear received a U.S. patent for a wireless telegraph in 1882 and obtained a patent for an induction method of a wireless telegraph in 1886. So he was quite the inventor, and it's plausible that both Tillman and Dahlbear could have been involved in the airships. Commenting on reports that some of the airships used electric batteries to power their propellers, Michael Busby writes, Note the identification of the storage batteries as the source of electricity. Motive power is again identified as electrical motors fed by storage-age batteries. Dahlbear and Tillman were university professors with a professional interest in electricity and batteries. Amos E. Dolbear was a professor at Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. He was a close confidant and friend of Moses Farmer, who between 1864 and 1868 perfected a thermoelectric battery. And in 1868, 
constructed the largest one ever built for the deposition of copper upon steel to produce the American compound telegraph wire. During the years of 1860 to 1863, Moses Farmer developed alloys of aluminum with copper and other metals. In September 1859, Moses Farmer discovered the law of what is now called self-exciting dynamo, and between that time and 1866, built the first dynamo machine, an invention which, says Professor A.E. E. Dalbert, has made possible all the electrical industries of today. Captain Samuel Eskew Tillman was a professor of chemistry at West Point Military Academy from December 23, 1880, until his appointment as the Academy's superintendent in 1917. Professor Tillman authorized the textbook Elementary Lessons in Heat and Essential Principles of Chemistry. So these two guys could plausibly be interested in airship development, and they could have ended up on an airship together when it was seen in Stephenville, Texas. And we have confirmation of that from another source. After Tillman and Dalbert gave their names in Stephenville, the airship was seen again in New Orleans, Louisiana. And according to a story printed in the New Orleans Daily Picayune on Wednesday, April 21st, reporters in New Orleans checked to see if Tillman and Dalbert might be staying in their city. They discovered that they were registered under their names in a local hotel, and the paper sent cards to their rooms, apparently looking for interviews, but they didn't respond to the cards as you'd expect, of secretive inventors who didn't want to be interviewed. But their names were on the register when there had just been an airship sighting in New Orleans, and that suggests that they were traveling together. The next name on our list was Wilson. That doesn't sound promising, as there are lots of Wilsons in the United States. True, however, since Mr. Wilson gave his name so that he could be mentioned to his friend C.C. Akers, it should at least be his real name, and C.C. Akers confirmed that Wilson was real, that he had been working on airship designs, and that he'd known him back in 1876 and 77 in Fort Worth. Akers also said that Wilson had been about 24 years old at the time, which would mean that he was born about 1850. Sheriff Baylor also reported that he was told that Wilson's airship originated in Goshen, New York. There's also another airship account in which it was said that one of the investors in the airship was a native of New York named Hiram Wilson, whose father was Willard H. Wilson. So we're looking for a Hiram Wilson, son of Willard Wilson, who was born about 1850 in or near Goshen, New York. And Michael Busby found one. By comparing census records and Civil War service records, he was able to identify a specific Willard H. Wilson who was from New York, who he thinks was the father of Hiram. He also found records of Hiram Wilson, and the two apparently moved from New York to California after the war between the states, and then spent time in Texas in the 1870s. So we have a plausible identification. What about Dr. E.H. Benjamin? What can we say about him? Our final manhunt is really interesting, and not so much because of the question of whether he existed. For reasons I can't fathom, Alan Danilek says in his book that we don't have any proof that Benjamin existed, but in Michael Busby's book, he cited all kinds of records for Benjamin, and Danilek recommends Busby's book 
even though he comes to some different conclusions. So I assume he read the Busby book and saw all those records. I have no idea why Danilek says we don't have proof of Benjamin's existence. But just to be sure, I went looking myself. And not only is Dr. Benjamin, whose fuller name, as given by the papers, was Elmer H. Benjamin, mentioned all over the place in the newspapers, he was even interviewed by reporters. But I found additional records of him existing. For example, I found a notice in the San Francisco Chronicle from July 13th, 1899, announcing the awarding of of doctoral degrees in medicine and dental surgery. And Elmer H. Benjamin is right there and listed as being awarded a doctoral degree in dental surgery. And since these were being awarded in San Francisco, that means we have a dentist in San Francisco named Elmer H. Benjamin. So he apparently took up the practice of dentistry again and got an advanced degree in it. Between that and all the other records of him that I've seen, I consider Dr. Benjamin's existence certain. The question then would be whether he had anything to do with the airships. Yes, and this is where it gets really interesting. If, as George Collins implied, Benjamin was his client whose identity he had promised not to reveal— but Collins revealed enough details to let reporters figure out who he was, then you'd imagine Benjamin would be really mad about that. Well, on Tuesday, November 24th, the San Francisco Call published a piece in which they poked fun at Collins for a sudden reversal he'd made. Yesterday, he either had a visit from the irate inventor and an order to quit talking, or else he has just been aroused from a hypnotic condition into which some unknown Svengali plunged him a week ago. Like Charles Dickens' character from Bleak House, Little Joe, he don't know no think about no think. He indignantly repudiates the insinuation that there ever was an airship, and as for his having seen such a thing fly, the very supposition is ridiculous. There certainly was a man who visited him a few days ago with some talk about a flying machine and a patent and a model, but beyond that he's not aware of anything in connection with the matter. He never sent any airship application to Washington, and in short, any man who says he did is a liar and a son of a liar. Mr. Collins thinks it's an insult to connect him in any way with anything so vulgarly improbable as an airship. He is sorry to have to tell two or three hundred people who have listened to his statements that they are, well, storytellers, but he can say no other way out of it. On Sunday, the following scrap of conversation passed between two persons. Mr. Collins, on your word of honor as a professional man, have you seen this airship in successful operation? Yes, I have. But Mr. Collins was evidently in a trance at the time, for he doesn't now remember a word about it. So anxious is Mr. Collins to undo the wonder he has worked that he now declares his positive belief that no successful airship has ever been constructed. When he took a retainer from his client last Thursday morning, Collins says he instructed the inventor to provide him with a model. Promising to do so, the inventor left and has not since returned. So Collins' story has completely changed, and Benjamin, now that the press has identified him, also indicated that he had nothing to do with the airship. The story continued. Benjamin talks, is inconsistent, but refuses to father the invention. Dr. E. H. Benjamin, the man who has either by chance or for a purpose been suggested as the inventor of the airship, was seen at 633 Ellis Street last night by a call reporter. 
He had retired and was asleep, but arose, partly dressed, and cordially invited his late visitor into his room, a large single bedchamber at the front of the boarding house, and with a bay window overlooking Ellis Street. Dr. Benjamin is a sinewy-built man above the average height, and with a large mustache and brown hair and gray eyes. He frankly denied having any connection with or personal knowledge of an airship, but his avowals of willingness to impart the information were it his to give were not consistent with his acknowledgments that a man with so very valuable an invention, not completely perfected and not yet securely patentable, would be justified in lying in a straightforward manner in order to divert from himself all attention that might result in his being persistently followed, and the whereabouts and design of the flying device made known. Benjamin said, in effect, I'm not the guy, and I'd tell you if I were, but I'd also be justified in lying to you if I were. So that doesn't particularly inspire confidence that he's telling the truth in this interview. The article went on to say, During a long conversation, he said in part, I'm a dentist and have been for 12 years. I am 34 years old and a bachelor. I have a married uncle in Placerville. His name is F.W. Benjamin and he is a practicing physician of some means. George Collins is my attorney, for I have known George for a long time, and whatever little law business I have wanted done, I have had him do it. I saw him today, and he laughed heartily when I told him that they had me as the inventor of the airship. He is a shrewd fellow. Well, I only wish I was the inventor, but I am inclined to think I would be afraid to go up on it. It is true that I am an inventor, but along other lines. My inventions have to do with dentistry and consist in patented crowns and bridges for teeth and a reducer to draw the gold bars and making gold caps without seams. Then I have a number of other little dental inventions. Since my name appeared this morning in connection with this affair, my friends have joshed me a good deal about being the inventor, and I have told some of them that they may have a ride with me tomorrow if the night is favorable. I have given some thought to the possibility of inventing an airship, I firmly believe that there is an airship somewhere near here and that it will not be long before the public sees it. So he says, no, I'm not the inventor, but he admits he's thought about the possibility of inventing one and he believes there is an airship in the area and that it will soon be seen by the public. And in view of his admission that he would be warranted in lying if he was the inventor, all of that is consistent with a temporary set of lies in which he's laying the groundwork for eventually announcing himself as the inventor. Why shouldn't we take him at his word that he's not the inventor? Because it's really hard to explain George Collins's earlier claims on this theory. Collins previously indicated that he had seen the airship in flight. He gave a very vivid, dramatic account of having the inventor personally give him a demonstration of it. He said he filed a patent application on the airship. He also gave lots of specific details about the inventor. And they pointed squarely at Dr. Elmer Benjamin, who admits he's an inventor, just not of this. Yet now, Colin says he's never seen the airship or even a model of it. He hasn't filed a patent application and is waiting to see a model from the inventor, that he apparently just met the inventor last Thursday, and that none of the details that he gave that pointed to Benjamin apply to the actual inventor. It's really hard to see how all that could just be a misunderstanding, which suggests that what really happened 
is what the San Francisco call suggested. He let too much slip, and he had a meeting with the irate inventor who told him to shut up and take the heat off of him as his client. And then Benjamin apparently did something unexpected. On Wednesday, November 25th, the San Francisco Chronicle ran a story under the headline, Venus and Mars Under Suspicion. The article was a lighthearted mocking one in which the paper made fun of both Collins and Benjamin. But in the middle of all the mocking, the Chronicle dropped this bombshell. Benjamin came into the Chronicle office yesterday and said that he wanted to throw off the mask. This continued deception was killing him. He was the inventor of an airship and had been working on the proposition for seven years. He had the whole thing nearly ready for the public and was only waiting to perfect a few details before springing it on an anxious world. The Chronicle apparently didn't believe him because they just kept on mocking. But Benjamin apparently admitted to a newspaper that he was the inventor. This didn't mean that he wasn't mad at Collins, though, because he apparently fired George Collins and got a new attorney. The same day, on Wednesday, November 25th, the San Francisco Call ran a story which stated, Ex-Attorney General W.H.H. H. Hart now has charge of the destinies of the airship, which has hitherto been under the legal wings of Attorney George D. Collins. The reason for the change is said to be due to the loquacity of Mr. Collins. The inventor, who is said to be extremely desirous of maintaining his incognito, thinks that Colin talked not wisely and too much. And that's only explainable on Collins's first story, where he gave a lot of details about the inventor, and that would make Benjamin the inventor. Collins' second story was just badly executed damage control, so Benjamin got a new and more prestigious attorney, a former attorney general. And William Hart went on to say, There are two inventions, and they are very much alike. One was perfected in the East and the other in California. I have been concerned in the Eastern invention for some time personally. The idea is to consolidate both interests. I have seen the machine invented in the East, and I am convinced it will work all right. And from what I've been told, I don't see any reason why the machine invented in California cannot be worked. So that would confirm the multiple airship theory and explain why we've been hearing reports of inventors or investors from both the East and the West Coasts. Hart also went on to describe the function that the airship would be put to. My plan of operating this invention requires it to be kept as secret as possible. I propose to use it wholly for war purposes, and within the next five or six months it will be put to the test. From what I have seen of it, I have not the least doubt but that it will carry four men and 1,000 pounds of dynamite. Before it is brought into practical use, however, two important modifications must be made. It must be so constructed that if it should be injured while over a body of water and drop, it will float like a boat. The bottom will also have to be protected so that the cylinder cannot be penetrated by rifle bullets or weapons of small caliber. Because we expect to use it for war purposes is the reason I will not give the names of the persons who are interested in it. We don't want to be arrested as filibusters on the first trial of the machine. From what I know of it, I am quite convinced that two to three men could destroy the city of Havana in 48 hours. This machine is being tested in California owing to the favorable character of our climate. 
So there's our connection back to the Cuba story that we heard about last episode, that one or more of the airships were going to be used to bomb the Spanish forces in Cuba during the Cuban War of Independence and the forthcoming Spanish-American War, which we discussed back in episode 151 on Operation Northwoods. We also talked about military filibusters and what those are back in episode 255 on the Knights of the Golden Circle. The call also got word from another source about the identity of the inventor. One source apparently told them that it was a doctor named Caitlin or Catlin who had been assisted by Dr. Benjamin. However, this may be mistaken, and I haven't seen any evidence that Dr. Catlin existed. But on the same page, the call carried an interview with another man, a Dr. C.A. Smith, and Smith says he can't say that he's seen the California airship, but he's working on one that will be ready for testing next April and tour the country. Dr. Charles A. Smith was a real man, and he was an airship inventor. On August 11th, 1896, a few months earlier, he had been awarded patent number 585 803 for an airship design that matches the one described in the call. And since he said he would be making a transcontinental journey in April of 1897, well, that was the month that the airship sightings peaked in phase two. So it's very possible that he was one of the inventors who was active during that phase. So we may have uncovered another name of someone connected with the airships. If what William Hart said about using an airship to bomb Havana in a war was really their intent, that raises a possibility you mentioned last episode. Could this have been part of a secret government project? It's possible. Uh, now, the government does way more classified military research than it did back in 1896, but it did have secret military projects back then. And the planned military use of an airship could be a hint that this was part of such a program. So, too, could be the fact that one of the people involved was Samuel E. Tillman, the scientist from West Point. He was an active military officer, and his involvement in the 1897 airships could signal that they were part of a military project. Then there's the fact that on Tuesday, April 27th, the Austin Daily Statesman reported on a sea expedition that had just left and was taking arms down to Cuba. And one of the things they reported it to be taking was, quote, an experimental flying machine adapted to the use of dynamite. Close quote. So that sounds like the government may have been involved in researching military airships. Do you see any arguments against the idea that this, this was part of a secret government project? The most obvious one is the fact that William Hart said he wasn't revealing the inventors' identities because they didn't want to get arrested as filibusters while they were still testing the machines. That would suggest that they were planning an extra-legal activity that the government was not part of. He also indicates that they had a highly commercial motive and expected to be well paid for their activities. He estimates that they would make $5 million or $180 million today 
in just six months, so they apparently expected to be handsomely paid by somebody, perhaps grateful Cubans, and with all that money, they could retire anywhere in the world they wanted or just bribe their way out of any legal trouble for conducting a military filibuster. However, all of that also could be part of a cover story, so I consider it uncertain whether this was part of, of a government project or not. Even if military men like Professor Tillman were involved, that doesn't mean it was authorized by the government. We now come to our final question from the reason perspective, which is why the airship flap of 1896 and 1897 ended. If these were human inventors, we can't chalk up their behavior to the mysterious, inexplicable ways of aliens. So if it was a military project, why didn't they bomb Spanish forces in Cuba? And if it wasn't a military project, why didn't they announce their marvelous new invention to the world? Well, I've seen it suggested that it's possible they really weren't interested in publicity, that the two phases of the flap could have just been a, a big joyride, you know, aeronauting festival for an inventor's club. But this isn't consistent with the numerous statements that they planned to reveal their, their airships publicly or with the way they seemed to court publicity. It looked like they were building up to something, whether that was building up to attracting wealthy financial backers who would invest in them to start a new uh, commercial air travel conglomerate, or whether it was showing what they could do to wealthy financial, financial backers who would pay them to bomb Spanish forces in Cuba. So the fact that they didn't do either of these things suggests that something stopped them. And the question is, what? One suggestion I've seen, just as a possibility, is that they were bought out by the railroad barons. Almost all passengers and a lot of freight are shipped today by the airline industry rather than by the rail industry. And you could foresee that this would happen if we got the problem of aerial navigation solved. So when the railroad barons realized that airships would crush their business, they bought out the inventors and convinced them to keep their design secret, only to have the Wright brothers smash everything a few years later with the invention of powered flight. The problem is that this explanation is entirely speculative. I'm not aware of any evidence for it. But I am aware of evidence for another thing that could have stopped them. And it's illustrated by this story from Tuesday, April 13th, in the Detroit Evening News. Went to smash, airships said to be scattered over Kalamazoo County. Callsburg, Michigan, April 13th. If reports from Pavilion Township are true, then the much-talked-of airship was not only a reality, but is now a thing of the past. George W. Summers and William Chadburn, old soldiers, claimed to have seen the airship on Sunday evening, April 11th, when they remained up until a late hour in attendance upon a sick horse. The descriptions given by the Patriots are somewhat at variance, but agree in the assertion that the apparition was illuminated at both ends and plowed through space with wonderful rapidity. They had scarcely time for the above observation when a dull explosion was heard and the object disappeared. They declare the report to have been like that of heavy ordnance and to have been immediately succeeded by a distant sound of projectiles flying through the air. Wondering neatly, they proceeded to the house where they passed an excited and sleepless night. While these two men are the only ones who claim to have witnessed the phenomenon, 
there are many corroborating circumstances as follows. Mr. and Mrs. Wallace say they heard the explosion distinctly, but thought it was thunder. But the discoveries of the morning were sufficient to establish the veracity of the two actual observers, the two old soldiers. In one place, two miles from Scott's, there was found part of some electric appliance. At another point, a propeller blade of some very light material was found in a partially fused condition. Three men engaged in shingling a barn in Comstock Township affirmed that, upon resuming work on the morning following the occurrence, they found their completed work strewn with minute fragments which had, in some instances, penetrated the shingles and entered the boards beneath. Whatever may be the theories, there is scarcely a doubt that the aerial stranger is gone forever and that its origin and the experiences of its crew are to remain forever a mystery. And this wasn't the only story like that. There's one account of an airship in Meade, Washington, being found abandoned on the ground after it broke down. And there are other stories of what were either definitely or possibly airships crashing and exploding. And remember, all this was brand new technology. Even if the principles had been around for a while, it hadn't been put together this way before, and that's why the crews were often seen on the ground doing repairs to their airships. So maybe what we could call the Hindenburg problem happened to this first group of airships. We discussed the Hindenburg disaster back in episode 189, so you can go back and listen to that for the details. But basically, maybe some or even all of the airships blew up because of the hydrogen they were using, since helium wasn't available in quantity yet. Or maybe they otherwise broke down. And it was enough to convince the inventors that this technology was not yet ready for prime time. So they quietly backed off from the project to save face, and that's what you'd expect them to do if they were conducting airship tests and experienced multiple, sometimes catastrophic failures that killed men working for them who were part of their crews. I think that this, more than anything else, is the likely reason they never publicly announced their new airships. Finally, is there anything to say about the 1890s airships from the faith perspective? Not really. Uh, this is a story of science and technology, and there's nothing wrong with building airships. Uh, the in inventors were just pioneers who didn't have all the bugs worked out yet. That means they took risks, but innovation involves risk, and you can't always foresee how much risk you're undertaking with a new venture. However, as we discussed in episode 208 on time travel prayer, we can still pray for everyone involved in this project, including those who lost their lives or appeared to have lost their lives when the airships failed, as well as for those who survived. And Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the mystery airships? I think the airships were likely real and that we've identified at least some of the men who were likely behind them. Dr. Elmer Benjamin, Dr. Charles A. Smith, Professor Samuel E. Tillman, Professor Amos E. Dalbear, and Hiram Wilson are all plausible candidates. I think that this may or may not have been part of a government project, and I think that we've identified the most likely reason that it failed, which was the failure and sometimes catastrophic failure of multiple airships when they were put to extensive testing. So I think we've likely solved the secret origin of the mystery airships. And what further resources can we offer to the listeners? 
We'll have a link to Michael Busby's book, Solving the 1897 Airship Mystery, and J. Allen Danilek's book, The Great Airship of 1897. Also, Carlos Allende's book, Close Encounters of the Phantom Kind, the ghost airship wave of 1896-97 in the news. We'll also have a link to a video of that popular song, Just Tell Them That You Saw Me, and also information about Dolbear's Law involving crickets. So that's it from us at this time. What are your theories about the secret origins of the 1890s mystery airships? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619 619- Seven three eight four five one five. That's six one nine seven three eight four five one five. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work on this episode. Uh, be sure to check out uh, what they do on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. Uh, while you're there, uh, like and comment on the videos. So that tells YouTube that you were interested in it and therefore other people would be interested as well. So the algorithm will share it with them and you can help grow the channel just by liking and commenting on the videos. Also, I am trying to grow the channel and I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the others that I put up. And Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're combining our two tongue-in-cheek sayings here on the show. It's always aliens and it's always demons. Some people think that UFOs must be demonic phenomenon, and they reject the hypothesis that they might be from other planets or other physical dimensions. So next week, we'll be asking the question, is it always alien demons? First, though, since our look at the 1890s airship mystery involved a lot of newspaper research on my part, here are some ads from the 1896 and 97 newspapers that I read. Hostetters celebrated stomach bitters. Good blood full of vitality comes from the use of Hostetters stomach bitters. It cures dyspepsia, indigestion, and constipation. See that a private revenue stamp covers the neck of the bottle. Butter and egg problems solved. These are the days when it's hard to get butter and eggs that are fit to eat. The next time you want good butter and eggs, try us. We sell and guarantee. Sedgwick Creamery Butter, absolutely sweet and palatable, comes by Express every day. Per pound, 35 cents. Sunflower eggs, the only eggs that are good to eat in hot weather. A dozen, 30 cents. Our guarantee with butter and eggs. We are headquarters for fresh fruit and vegetables. Jackson's Sanitary Grocery. Phone 353-105 El Paso Street. The Texas and Pacific Railway has through chair cars. Seats free between Dallas and Memphis, Dallas and St. Louis, Dallas and El Paso. The best service in Texas. Cheap, cheap, cheap. Money is what I want. I will sell the following articles so cheap that you will hardly miss your money. Two six-ounce bottles railroad snuff, 25 cents. Two six-ounce bottles dental snuff, 35 cents. 
Three one-pound bucket baking powder, 40 cents. One one-pound can baking powder, 15 cents. Ketchup per bottle, 10 cents. Ketchup per bottle best grade, 20 cents. Two three-pound cans California fruit, 35 cents. American sardines per box, 5 cents. Baked bean sauce, one-pound can, 5 cents. Salsoda per pound, 5 cents. My grocery stock is almost complete. My soda fountain is in good time, and I will be in the lead for cold drinks. Your patronage solicited, yours truly, J.F. Rush. Hey, gentlemen, smoke those nice, sweet, fragrant, aromatic, clear Havana, Florida Adams cigars. Cool spots. The Southern Railway tenders you innumerable cool places, mountains, springs, and seashore in Tennessee, Virginia, and the Carolinas at moderate cost and within reach of all in which to spend the hot summer months. Your going and coming made pleasant, comfortable, and convenient by the splendid double daily service of the Southern Vestibule trains carrying comfortable coaches, luxurious Pullman sleepers, and library, dining and observation cafe cars, summer tourist tickets on sale at all coupon ticket offices, good for return trip until October 31st. For descriptive list of these pleasant places and information regarding your summer outing, correspond with M.H. Bone, WPA, Dallas, Texas, C.H. Ben Scooter, AGPA, Chattanooga, Tennessee. 25% discount during July on all violins, guitars, mandolins, and banjos. Washburn's accepted. Order today as sale closes July 31st. Thomas Goggin and Brother of Dallas, the up-to-date music house, largest in the South. Chalk Plate Engraving. The news is prepared to execute chalk plate engravings at reasonable figures. For further particulars, address A.H. Bellow and Company, Publishers, Dallas, Texas. Are you going away? If so, don't forget to have the news sent to you. Address may be changed as often as desired. Keep up with home affairs. New Exchange. It will soon be the pleasure of residents of Oak Cliff to know that the musical Hello, which greets them when they use their telephones, comes from their side of the river. Manager Farnsworth of the telephone company announced yesterday that the branch exchange, the erection of which was begun some weeks ago, will be completed and in use before the end of the week. It is at the corner of Lancaster Avenue and 10th Street and will furnish faculties for 200 to 300 subscribers. The great big thing about Schilling's Best Tea is your money back if you don't like it. Your grocer pays it and we pay him. Great big because you like the tea. If you didn't, you'd ruin us. Great big for us all. You get the tea, the grocer, and we get the business. A Schilling and Company, San Francisco. Of interest to tourists, trunks of all sort guaranteed to be excellent travelers, the kind that have earned for us the reputation of manufacturing the best trunks on record at the lowest prices on record. Some specials in club bags and suitcases this week. Henry Pollock Trunk Company, 229 Elm Street. That's fantastic. And uh, before we go, I do want to encourage everyone, be sure to check out the Mysterious World Bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at Mysterious.fm slash 280. 
And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. And these sponsor spots are actually real sponsor spots. Please uh, check oh, so, them out. So were the others. They were just, they were real ads from 100 years ago. <laughs> these are current and uh, definitely you want to support these folks. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. And by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at RosaryArmy.com and SchoolOfMary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>